Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mito, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel. How's it going? It's going. We have a, an important episode today. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So we should kind of explain to people what's been going on behind the scenes. Let's start off with our social media post that sort of explained we were going to take a week off and not post new content. We felt like the state of the world, uh, specifically around race, was something that we needed to address. And we wanted to take some time to really be carefully reflect about it and put something together that was thoughtful and helpful for people. So that explains that post. And then we were going to put an episode together addressing anti-racism, and we made an outline. One of the parts of that uh, we we had discussed, we had brainstormed, like, let's invite someone who is black onto the podcast and help uh, discuss it. So we posted this episode, and we got some feedback, uh, and we immediately decided to pull the episode down. Some of the ideas, I think, were, were all meant for the best intentions. It was something that we could have done better. We made a mistake. I like to say, Rachel, that um, you know, this, when I went to school, I feel like uh, the, uh, the elementary, middle, and high school uh, did not prepare me well for making mistakes. Traditional school does not prepare kids well for how to um, for, for making mistakes. Meaning, you you go, you learn content, you take that content, you spit it back out on the test, and if you don't do well on the test, it's your fault for not trying hard enough or something. We don't embrace those mistakes, and that's something we're actively trying to change in education: is to say. No, this is how learning happens. You learn from your mistakes. You you mess up and you grow from them. And so that's what I think we need to say is that we made a mistake with that episode. Absolutely. And when I was first thinking about this mistake, Chris, um, I was I was I was upset. Right? I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you know we tried really hard to put out an episode that was going to be powerful and impactful and was going to be helpful, and in fact, it was not. Um, and so, the first like reaction that I had to that was like, I want to walk away from this discomfort. Like, I want to push this away because this is not a pleasant experience. You know and what I realized after that, you know, after having time to reflect was that this mistake was the best thing that could have happened because what, what happened was I worked through it and then we were able to have this amazing episode. Uh, Carol Walton is the speech language pathologist who came on. She talked with us all about her experience. She created an ASHA petition, um, all about the action steps that she would like to see Asha make. It's had, I think it almost has 10,000 signatures, Chris, in a very short amount of time. Um, And so Kara was so gracious to come on and talk with us. Um, And I feel so, I feel so much better about the entire situation because, you know, we had no idea. And I think that's the, that's the point here is that if we, if we try to walk this straight and narrow line where we never make a mistake, we don't learn and grow. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I went into our initial episode, Chris, I mean, I told you I had so much anxiety because I thought I was going to say the wrong thing and mm-hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't want to come off as, mm-hmm. as racist. Mm-hmm. And we I totally think, both did. <laughs> exactly. And so I think what I've learned is that, you know, first of all, I could try as hard as I, I want to. And we did try to, you know, walk that straight and narrow line, you know, but we have blind spots. We have things that we 
can't even understand, we wouldn't even think about because of our experience. We are white. And so I, I'm so thankful that this, this happened the way that it did. Um, I'm so thankful to Kara for being, you know, so wonderful and coming on to talk with us and um, highlighting the blind spots that we had. Um, and so I'm really excited to share this episode. This went from being literally my worst nightmare come true to one of the best things that could have happened. Um, and so I'm so grateful that I had this experience and I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. Growth doesn't come without struggle. And that's, I always try and remember that. And I had the exact same feelings you did. Uh, like I've said to you before, how do I face my kids if I don't do anything? You know, like that's not the person I want to be. So, um, and w- what kind of person would I be if I, if I couldn't admit my mistakes and then change and grow from them? So I agree with you that I think, um, you know, that this is the kind of the best thing that could have happened to, to us, at least personally and professionally. And I hope that other people can learn from those same mistakes and, and go, well, yeah, you know, geez, Chris and Rachel made mistakes. I can make mistakes and grow from them too. Is the key here is you need to lean into the discomfort, right? Like you need to lean into the uncomfortable conversations. You know, if we got super defensive, Chris, like we wouldn't have grown and we wouldn't have learned. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's the key here is, you know, leaning in and also being open um, to have, you know, your mind changed or to have a different perspective. Um, It takes being open and not getting defensive um, to have that change happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at the end of the interview, you're going to hear us talk about SMART goals. And we felt like we wanted to write one because one of the things that we are nervous that, that would happen is that that there's been a cycle where sometimes there's an event out in the world and then there's a rush to protest and then that kind of dies away and then something else happens. It never gets resolved. And we feel like one of the ways that we could maybe help keep that ball in the air and let things not simmer down is to have an ongoing goal where we could not only help other people by keeping an, a spotlight on racial issues and inequalities, but then also that focus on ourselves, right? It's easy for to, to, to kind of let that goal die and move on to another goal. So one way to help keep that happening for ourselves and for other people is to actually write a SMART goal that, um, that really addresses inequality. So that goal that we wrote, Rachel, is this. I'm going to read it right now. Is that okay? By June 2021, the Talking with Tech podcast will have spotlighted organizations or individuals who work to improve racial equality within a podcast episode at least 12 times. So we're shooting it once a month there, but if we miss a month, we're going to try and double up in another month. But the idea is, is that we are going to, for a year, we're going to have at least at least spotlighted 12 different times, different organizations, or sometimes it's the same organization, but organizations that are working to improve racial equality. Yeah, I'm really excited about this too, because ultimately I would love to not only spotlight organizations, but I think that by hearing all of the spotlights and all of these organizations, um, you guys, as your, as our listeners, can figure out how to get involved with these organizations, how to support these organizations. So I'm really excited um, about this goal, and I'm really eager to you know get started. With that being said, if you know of any organizations that we could potentially spotlight, please, please, please email us, uh, talkingwithtech at gmail.com. Um, we would love any insight. Um, we have a few that we've found that we are going to reach out to, but we would love ideas. 
And in fact, we're going to list those in the show notes, some of those organizations, and then of course, some other additional resources that might be beneficial to you. One of the things we also mentioned at the end of the interview is that there's some research that suggests that when you write a goal, you're more apt to actually achieve the goal. Like rather than just kind of think about it as have an idea, you actually write down a measurable goal. In fact, if there's anything that we're good at, right, as, as uh, special educators and speech language pathologists, it's writing measurable goals. So write a measurable goal and write it down like we just did. But then there's some additional research that supports the idea that if you share that goal, you're even more apt to actually achieve that goal. So we wanted to provide people an opportunity to share their goals, either in a public format or maybe in a private format just with us, but some way where if you've shared it, that you're going to then actually carry through with it. And so we created a Google form that allows you to do just that. So you can reach that at bit.ly backslash TWT equity form. Again, you can, you can share your goal anonymously so it doesn't have to be attached to your name. Um, the idea behind this was, of course, the accountability piece, but also we would love to share ideas that we hear from you because I think that we can all collectively you know, share ideas that someone else might not have thought of um, as a way to continue the momentum with this movement and to really kind of take action because I think a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, 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 of momentum right now and we just want to make sure that that momentum continues. So without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Kara Walton. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and as always, I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? Yeah, it's going good, Chris. And we also have with us today, Kara Walton. How's it going, Kara? I'm great. How are you? Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We cannot thank you enough for being here to participate in this interview with us. Thank you. So, Kara, can you just tell us your background as a speech-language pathologist and how you got interested in AAC specifically? Absolutely. So funny story. I've only been a speech pathologist for two years now. Um, and I came straight out of grad school, straight into working with individuals with AAC. So currently, um, I work at a mental health facility that works with individuals from three to 22 with autism and other behavioral health um, diagnoses like ODD. Um, so we see individuals with very high aggression, behaviors, pretty much anything that would keep them from a normal or a typical school environment, they come and receive um, ABA services as well as educational services here with us. So I would say about 30%, maybe a little higher, maybe 40% of my caseload is AAC. Wow. So part of the reason that we connected, Kara, was because you created a petition. Um, there's been a lot of petitions, you know, going around. Um, you know, we all know kind of about the ASHA, the first ASHA petition. Hey, ASHA, why don't you make a statement? And then we know how that went. Um, then they made another mm -hmm. statement. Um, but your petition specifically is action steps for ASHA. Um, so can right. you talk about like how the genesis of that? Like, how did that come to be? Right. So I was scrolling on Facebook and saw Ash's statement and had no idea what they were even talking about, what the statement was even trying to reach. Right. So I reread the statement like four times. Like there's no race in the statement. The word black doesn't come up. No mention of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. 
Aubrey Ahmed, just nothing, right? So I'm like, what are they even trying to talk at here? So then I get to reading the comments. And I'm like, oh, this is their diversity statement. Go figure. Um, and I saw how angry everyone was, right, in the comments. And they're all like, email Asha, email Asha, email Asha. And I'm thinking to myself, we're going to send all these emails to Asha. And then they're going to send us back an automatic reply saying, we got your email. We hear you're upset. We're going to do better. And no one who really has any authority or can make any real changes probably read any of those emails, right? Mm -hmm. So I came to work one day um, and met down with my supervisor because we were going to sit and write an email from our speech department. And I was like, let's not write another email. Like, what is another mad email to Asha going to do? Like, no one's reading me. No one cares. I said, let's make an action plan. Let's tell Asha exactly what we want them to do so then they can't come back at us and say, well, we don't know what to do. Well, we tried this. Well, now their new statement says by 2025. Like, we need something before 2025, right? So I'm like, let's give them something simple but concrete that they can do now. Um, and that's what I want everybody to be clear on, like, that the petition is only six things. Is this all we want to see from Asha? Absolutely not, right? But these six things are something that Asha can do today, tomorrow, things that can be in place by August. Um, so we're not waiting until 2025 for them to come up with something. Um, so that Friday morning, me and my supervisor, Abby Harris, sat down and wrote this action statement over and over and over again. And then it went live um, Saturday morning. Would you mind, do you have it? Would you mind reading it and kind of yeah. going over what those six steps are? Because I bet there's listeners that won't be familiar with what they are. And this way they can then absorb them themselves and maybe sign that petition. Absolutely. So it begins, um, we the members of the American Speech Language Hearing Association and the community are demanding change. We appreciate ASHA for listening to its members and writing a new statement on racism. However, with no action plan, it is only words. Below is a list of our demands to increase cultural sensitivity. One, every action member will receive via email the statement on racism and police brutality, and it will be posted on Ash's homepage. Um, because I don't know if you guys got an email, but I did not. So no. if I didn't have Facebook, <laughs> I would have never even seen it, right? That's just exactly. not a yep. um, Number two, mandatory diversity CEUs requirements similar to our mandatory ethical requirements two hours in three years i think that's pretty doable right <laughs> that does make yeah. a lot of sense to me that is a very actionable thing to do and we just have this movement to ethics so why not this as well right absolutely like mm -hmm. how simple and easy would it be two more hours you have three years to do two hours right mm -hmm. we're not saying every ceu beyond diversity like that's ridiculous of course not but two hours i think we can all do that right Oh, the third one is more CEUs on diversity and multicultural issues on ASHA Learning Pass. Mm -hmm. So me and my um, supervisor looked on Learning Pass, and there are zero. There is not one CEU on diversity or multicultural issues. The only one that comes close is there's one about transgender voice, and that is it. There are none on race, none on diversity at all on the entire ASHA Pass, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Four, push for graduate schools to have requirements to enroll in more diverse class. Five, easily accessible free resources on Ash's website to how to serve minorities. And number six, 
um, which is probably, I think, maybe one of the most important ones, mandatory classes in undergrad and graduate studies on diversity and multicultural awareness and issues. Um, and this would be a requirement for universities to maintain their accreditation. Mm-hmm. Um, because in my experience, I had one class taught by my white professor. And I honestly think it was probably an optional, one of those optional lectures in grad school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. Mm-hmm. Six years of school, one lecture. Um, so make it that they can't just offer this, that it has to be mandatory for them to be accredited. I know that uh, Rachel and I, we were talking beforehand, she has had a class in it when she was in grad school, but my grad school certainly did not offer, not even a lecture. We didn't have any, it was never even discussed. So that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Absolutely. And I have to say too, I mean, it was, I was taught by a white professor, (laughs) you know, like similar to you, Kara. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, I really think, you know, when I, when I heard you talking about the diversity CEUs, you know, what I would hope is that, and, and I'm thinking through the lens of the ethics, right? When everything went, when everyone who was a CEU provider started realizing that ethics was going to be a mandated CEU, you know, all the CEU providers were like, well, we need course, we need courses on ethics. So mm-hmm. I can see a similar wave of that happening if ASHA mandates diversity CEUs um, and hopefully for, you know, black and uh, SLPs and SLPs of color, you know, hopefully we can see courses being taught, um, you know, because I, I think what I've been seeing a lot uh, on social media, um, you know, the experiences um, of black SLPs is saying, yes, I might've had a course, but it was taught by a white professor, you know, and it wasn't really resonating as a person of color. Yeah. It wasn't resonating. Um, Absolutely. Like, it's interesting because they wouldn't call in an SLP who is fluent and swallowing to teach the articulation class, right? So why would we call in a white professor to teach the one class, one lecture on diversity? Yeah, it doesn't you know, make sense. Like, yeah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit, Kara, since we're kind of on academia right now? And I, and I think you're right. I think we need to start with the undergraduate coursework and the graduate coursework, especially. Um, you know, that's where we're shaping the way that clinicians think and how mm-hmm. they practice. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience as a black woman going, you know, to undergrad and going to, you know, eventually graduate school? Like, what was that experience like? Oh, absolutely. Um, so when anyone tells me the, um, what was the one thing that happened that you knew or was pushing you forward to make sure that you got your master's degree and I will never forget it. It was right after my first semester of undergrad, I went to go see my advisor to schedule for next classes. I'm so excited. I got a 3.8 GPA, like enthusiastic, so excited, right? And I go see him and he says, well, you know you would have to keep this up. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And he goes, no, you have to keep a 3.8, not just, not just get a couple A's. And I said, or you have to get a 4.0. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. I know. And he's like, because grad school, getting into grad school is going to be really hard, really challenging. Okay. I'm, I'm ready. I'm up for the challenge. And he goes, don't waste any more of your time. And I say, what do you mean? He says, the likelihood of you being able to keep your grades up to be able to compete to go into grad school are slim. 
I'm thinking, I just got a 3.8. I am so excited, right? Like, I'm, I just had my introduction to communication sciences and disorders. It was everything I thought it would be. I'm so excited. I'm 18, and you're literally sitting here, and you're crushing my goal and saying it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on the spiel of, well, you know you can't, in the state of Ohio, we don't have SOPAs. And he goes, you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in communication disorders. And I'm like, okay, to some extent, like, I get that. Like, I know you have to have your master's. And he says, so let's just figure out what else we could do right now. Why, let's do it while we're ahead, right? And I'm just like, I mean, crushed, devastated. Mm-hmm. Like, can I really not keep my grades up? Why would he think that I wouldn't be able to? And I got a 3.8, right? So I go home, Christmas break, and I'm just, you know, my mom is bragging on me, telling everybody, I'm Dean's list, and I got a 3.8. And I'm sitting there like, yeah, but now I have to figure out what major I'm going to go back at because my advisor he's my advisor right he's the one that knows so I think he says I can't do this and I need to get out while I'm ahead the school is already expensive so I don't want to be in school longer than four years let me figure something out um and I remember it was a couple maybe a couple days before going back for January um to go back for a second semester and I thought I can't be the first person he's had this story with rolled off his tongue way too easily. He said it way too calmly. He was so trying to convince me that this was never going to happen, that I didn't need to waste any of my time. I could have not been the, stu- the first student he's had this conversation with. Mm-hmm. And then right there, I decided, even if I end up not liking this <laughs> next semester, I have to be an SOP now, right? Because I have to prove him wrong <laughs> exactly. that I can't do this, right? <laughs> like, I can go and take my next class and hate it, and I'm stuck. Just because of him. Um, right. I'll show and him. And I made that, right, I'll show you. Um, and I made that decision right then and there. Um, and got a 4.0. And I went back at the end of, in the spring and I said, well, I got a 4.0 now. <laughs> he goes, you still have time to switch. Oh, my gosh. He was never, he never said good job. You know, maybe start attending tutoring even though I didn't need it you know what I mean like give me something to help me <laughs> you're, you're tutoring for your 4.0 <laughs> yeah um never anything of that nature he just kept saying it's gonna get harder you're not gonna be able to keep this up don't waste your time and so I would like to hope that he knows that I'm an SOP now <laughs> I, hope <laughs> wherever, I hope somebody shares this you know, this episode right, wherever he is <laughs> I did it. You're wrong. Yeah. Oh man. It's, it's such a shame that I I feel similar with like, you know, it's like people who are like that should not be advisors. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just to discourage you and dissuade you, but you know, it's probably, that's a probably common experience. You Mm -hmm. know, if you are an undergrad and a person of color, like I'm, I'm guessing that you are not the only one Kara that has had that experience. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I might add that you're a woman. I know that my wife mm-hmm. had a similar experience where she really wanted to be a meteorologist and her white male professor said, no, women shouldn't be meteorologists. No, you should go into something else. Why don't you go into teaching? Like that same sort of experience. And so, mm-hmm. um, well, not the same. I mean, she's white, but the fact that you're both women, right. you know what I mean? And that someone is dissuading you because of that is, mm-hmm. no, what? Of course you could be whatever you want to be, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. 
And it feels like to me, like circling back to the petition, like we really need ASHA to do something. You know, that's how this is going to change because we are governed by this body that tells us what we need to do in order to, you know, practice. And so it's like, I am just so thankful that you and your supervisor got together and wrote this petition and I'm really excited to share it. Is it, is it possible for people who are listening to still sign it? Yes, it is still live on change.org. Okay. Um, If you search demands for ASHA, it should pop First one to pop up. We'll make sure we have it linked in the show notes so everyone can just And shout it from the rooftops. We will. Yes. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about the statistics. So, you know, we had already mentioned we had had an initial attempt for this episode that we ended up taking down. Um, What are the statistics as far as SLPs who are Black and also SLPs of color? So based off of ASHA's 2019 demographics, um, currently... There are 8% people of color SLPs, Mm -hmm. um, and then it drops even lower for which black people are included in that number, Um, but then black people only make up about 3% of SLPs um, in America. It's such a small percentage. It's like crazy. Small percentage. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm happy that you've shared your experience in, in, in undergrad because now we're understanding why probably, you know, it's like mm-hmm. who we're not, SLPs are not being encouraged, right? To right. enter our field. In, instead, your experience that you were discouraged multiple times. Right. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, something that what's huge in undergrad is because you talk about African-American English in a class or you talk about people's availability to healthcare in a class or something of that nature. And because there was only maybe, I think in undergrad, there was five of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, all of them ended up going into audiology but me. Um, we were always the ones looked at in class. Oh, we're talking about African-American English. Do some. And I'm like, do what? I don't know what you want me to say. Like, or like, we're talking about healthcare. Do you have insurance? You know what I mean? Do you have everybody not have insurance? And I think that that was also very discouraging, right? If you don't have a tough skin, you don't want to sit and listen to that all the day, all the time. And you have to be the, the voice of the community, right? Like I can only mm-hmm. speak for myself and my own experience. I can't talk for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was often um, the case in undergrad and grad school is I was looked at as the person that needed to talk for the black community. And that's tiring, right? It's tiring enough to go to class and you don't see anyone that looks like you. And then, you know, people sign up for groups and then people think they don't want to be in group with you because they assume your grades may not be as high enough as everyone else. But then if the topic is African-American English or something of that nature, everyone's looking at you like, do it, show us. Mm-hmm. You know, very tiring. And I think that's a lot of why, a lot of reasons why people don't stay in the field. You just don't want to put up with it. You know, I could go into another field and not have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And what has your experience been? So we talked a little bit about your experience in school. What has your mm-hmm. been, experience been kind of out in the field? You've been practicing for two years, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yes. So how so has luckily, that been? <laughs> yeah, luckily, you know, I've been at, um, I graduated grad school and a week later, maybe two weeks later, I started my job here. (laughs) Um, So luckily I have not had any issues or have dealt with any racism at my current employer, which I am so thankful for because I know that is not everyone's story. So I will say that I am lucky that I have not had those issues. Mm -hmm. Um, The 
company I work for are very opening. You know, we work with some of the hardest kids anybody would ever work with, right? And so if you can love our kids, like you must have to love everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm thankful that I haven't had to deal with that. Kara, can I ask where in Ohio are you? You know, like generally, what city? Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, okay. Because I went to Kent State, so I'm from Ohio. I mean, not from. I'm from Buffalo, New York, but that's on the other part. It's part of the state. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm from Akron, so Kent's right there. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, I was only there two years. Okay, so let me let's turn the conversation to AAC specifically because you said like forty percent of the population you work with you um, has AAC or they're AAC users, right? So, mm-hmm. what do you think are some of the um, considerations that that are specific to AAC when it comes to race? Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, where's the research? <laughs> we yes. I looked and looked and looked. You know, the more I work here, um, the more we see. Um, kids of color coming here and I'm like okay parents speak you know one language at at home and are English or second language learners do I get them a device that speaks in English but then don't you know what does their family even think about communication devices Um, how do different cultures even think of these things you know what I mean and I think where's the research you know Mm -hmm. I have no idea Especially, I think I had a student and parents, as soon as she walked in the door, get her device, get her device, get her device, right? I get her this, I get her device, try her out. She's perfect for it. She's amazing at it. Talks in full sentences, amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And then we look at her um, data from her device and see it's never used at home on the weekends, anything, right? So when I bring parents in and I'm like, why is her device never used? And they're like, that's a school thing. Interesting, because mm. you were the ones that wanted it, and she's great <laughs> at it. Let me show you that she's great at it. And, you know, then I become defensive because I'm like, wait, no, she needs to have a voice at home. And she, like, is amazing. Like, what is she doing all the time? And she can't talk. But then I think, hey, they're from a whole other country. They are brand new here. I don't even know how they even felt about this device. Maybe mm-hmm. they just looked it up online and saw that like, this would help them in their, edu- in their child's education. And so she needed to have it, but we don't use that at home, right? Mm-hmm. Or what if, if parents are English as a second language learner, if they're not super proficient in English, they may not even understand her if she, when she talks on the device. So mm-hmm. then I'm like, oh, well, these are all the things that I didn't consider before the device. And now I'm like, well, where's the research? Who's like, where's the information to help me figure out what to do next? So I think that's a huge issue. Like we need to get, maybe even myself needs to get on it um, and do some research on how different cultures and ethnicities even, what do they even think about AAC? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other two biggest things that I've been thinking about a lot recently is default eye concept, right? So I get a brand new device. I can, as soon as it turns on, it says which language system you want to pick, what voice you want to have. is it a girl or a boy, right? But then it goes on and all the pictures are automatic preset to white boy. Mm-hmm. So now I have to go in and change each icon to either a girl or a different race. Like that is absolutely absurd. I am pretty sure with the way technology is, why when I turn the device on, it doesn't have presets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it automatically will change them all. That would be so simple. 
right? Like, why do I have to go in and change every single icon? Why is that the default, a little boy, uh, a little white boy, you know? Even for an adult, you know, user, that's the first thing that comes up. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm hoping like maybe some AC company were listening and maybe they'll come out with some presets. <laughs> well, we have to tell you, Kara, all the AAC companies listen to this podcast. So, <laughs> I mean, we know. Rachel, I'm going to tell you in Kara, there are, uh, I have two quick stories. One is that uh, there's an app developer that I was just talking to the other day. He, he, uh, he and his company are releasing a brand new app. So it's coming out imminently. And he asked me to just take a look at it and give some feedback. And so I got a free code, looked at it, and it, it had exactly what you're talking about. One of the questions as you're setting up is, who do you identify with? And there are pictures so you can say like, oh, okay, that's who I look like. And you can choose that so that it does exactly what you said now. It's it's um, it presets all of those things based on that selection. So that's that's, that's to me is a sign that it's changing, right? And then For the sure. other that I'd want to say is I feel like one way to drive that change because it could be very similar to what you were saying with the email. So oh, they're listening to the talking with tech, but is that is that enough to drive the change? Oh, okay, let's send them a bunch of emails. Eh, it doesn't really hit them in the pocketbook, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not buying their product that really makes them go, oh yeah, okay, what do we need to change here, you know? And so mm-hmm. we've sort of advocated through the use of the uh, like a feature matching that we put that as one of the feature matching by default uh the symbol set has this when you're selecting it you know you can select um the the race that you want all the icons to look like without having to reset and if that was in the selection process and the the apps didn't have that then by default you would be eliminating some apps you know and that would then hit that's amazing That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Nothing changes a company more than when you affect their profits. <laughs> so, Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, as clinicians, like we are the ones who lead this ship, right? We are the ones who recommend certain devices. We do the assessments and we are like, I think this one's good. Um, you know, so it's mm-hmm. us who can really change. Um, you know, if we're deciding not to purchase a specific app that we don't think is reflective of within the icons and they don't have the features that we need for the specific student. Like that's, what's really going to move the needle, which is good. So everyone listening out here, we need to advocate for the, I love this. I love this idea. I mean, you're so right. I never thought about it that way, Kara, but like we do all the things, right? It's like, it's a boy, you know, speaking Mm -hmm. Spanish, like all of these things. Why would we not, you know, try to create symbol sets that are reflective of the student that, you know, we're programming the device for. Kara, back to your first point, too, about um, the research, is that when we started talking, one of the problems we identified was that there are not enough black SLPs. So the number of black SLPs that are in higher education doing research, I, I would guess here, that is that is even lower, right? And I mean, is, mm-hmm. is that a safe assumption to make? Yeah, I believe so. Mm-hmm. So I wonder when you're doing research, what kind of uh, implicit biases are embedded in the research? Maybe the the, the population that you're um, that you're asking to be your your n. You know what I mean? Your your mm-hmm. uh, the number of people that you're serving. And I wonder what else could be kind of hidden in there when you don't have a black person kind of leading the research. Yeah, very true. I think it it circles back to who's joining our field, right? So I think that that is where I think your petition is really wonderful because it really, it circles back to that exact issue. And so hopefully if we can change 
you know, if we can get more black and people of color in our field, like let's, let's move the needle that way so that there's more representation so that we can have, you know, researchers who are doing AAC specific work. You know, I think Mm -hmm. it all starts with, there's just a small, a really small pool at this point, not to mention all of the other, you know, uh, institutionalized, you know, issues with racism in general, um, which is another barrier, um, and problem. Mm -hmm. But I think that just getting more SLPs in our field, um, of color is a really great step in the right direction. Kara, okay, let's take it to the next step. So we're- I have one more I wanted to- I Oh, okay, now. sorry. Yeah, please, go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry, I thought it was too- <laughs> This one is specifically to Black children and Black adults, right? So, of course, there's African-American English, right? If I was on this call with my mom right now, this would sound totally different and I wouldn't even know it. Why can I teach my kid that? Like, African-American English has very- rules in it just like mainstream american english the syntax is the same and i can't teach my kid that on their devices um i was doing a teletherapy session with one of my kids and his mom came over and said something to him i can't remember what it was and i'm thinking in my head how i would have responded to that as a kid and then i'm trying to tell him on his device how to respond to that and he can't even respond to that the way i'm thinking that right like how crazy is that like mm-hmm. our devices aren't even set up for those cultural differences mm-hmm. and african-american english is just one of them mm-hmm. right like devices are only set up for mainstream american english but we know that people who speak african-american english like it's not a disorder it's just a difference mm-hmm. so there should be some way somehow that my kid can be able to communicate to his family the way his brother does Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want our kids to be included as much as possible, but then they can't even talk or sound like the people in their family. So I think that also is something that, that needs to be researched or figure mm-hmm. out how can we implement the syntaxes of different cultures into AAC. Mm-hmm. And it can't be, I mean, I know Rachel has talked a lot about like quick fire phrases. You could program some things, but it wouldn't be enough, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, right. there's too much of a difference to, to just make it a handful of things. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing is like, we know that we have different variations and dialects of English when on these devices. It's like, we have Australian, we have UK, we have, you know, why would we not have African-American English as a dialect? But you're so right. Like, you know, we want kids to be able to communicate with their family the same way that their brothers and sisters do. Absolutely. All right. Any more before I transition to the next one? That was the last one. That was yeah, a good one. We're happy that you one. said that one. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> so, so paint us a picture 10 years from now. What do we want to see happen? So that, well, like I said, like you said, with ASHA, this petition, that's some immediate things we could do. But 10 years from now, 15 years from now, what does it look like? You know, I think it's very important for us to strive to look like America, right? Like America is so diverse. Mm-hmm. And if I am Asian American, I should be able to find a provider not two and three hours away, but right down the street, because there's 100 SOPs right down the street, but I should be able to find a provider right down the street that looks like me, right? So my kid is more comfortable or so my mother is more comfortable or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think our field and, you know, other fields like ours, PT, OT, all of those things, like we need to strive to look like America. Um, we need to be more diverse. We need to um, advocate for everyone. I love it. I love that <laughs> line. So, so that so there'd be, um, 
proportionate, I think is what you're doing, right? Look like America. So let me ask you, Kara, has telepractice, what does that look like for you? Because could that be a way? So yeah, maybe I don't have an Asian American that lives right down the street from me, but maybe I could get on one that is somewhere in a different state. You know what I mean? Has, has, the, has mm-hmm. COVID changed that at all? Have you had any experience with telepractice? What, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, so currently I'm only seeing the kids on my current caseload um, for telepractice, but you know, I do think that is a, that is a great opportunity for people to be able to have providers to choose their provider more, more towards them. Right. Instead of just getting this list from their insurance company and these are the 10 people you can go see. And if you don't like it, Oh, well, you know, maybe that this telepractice that is, you know, expanding will allow for people to be more selective of who they want. Right. But with all that being said, there's a difference between telepractice and in-person speech therapy, right? Like, yes, you can pretty much do everything the same thing on telepractice, so not downing telepractice or any way like that. But how cool would it be if I could go down the street mm-hmm. and see someone that looks like me and knows my cultural differences? And I don't have to explain to them every little thing about why my kid does this or does that because that's not a weird thing my kid does. That's just what everyone in my culture does, right? And it's not weird. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have kids that come, we have a early intervention clinic and I hear like parents explaining a lot of different things. And I'm like, that's just probably your culture. And they're like, like trying to um, like overcompensate for it. And it's mm-hmm. like, there's nothing wrong with the way you do this or do mm-hmm. that. Like there's nothing wrong with your kid does this that maybe you don't see a kid on TV doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's just your culture. And it's great. And it's amazing and what it is right now. And we can appreciate it for what it is right now. It's not a, it's not a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think growing the field and making the field more diverse will help people to understand um, and help our clients to understand that we're here for them, right? And we understand that you have those differences. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about how cool would it have been um, in my graduate class to have a variety of people from different cultures, you know? then I wouldn't feel weird when I like get a kid on my caseload and I'm like, okay, is this something that just everyone in this culture does or, mm-hmm. you know, cause you don't want to be changing things that are culture. Right. But right. like, how would I know? Right. Cause I don't know any SOPs of this culture. So how amazing would that be if we could continue to grow it and become more diverse? That sounds like education to me. Like some of the things we've talked about is with AAC users specifically is to educate the people who are not AAC users, you know, Mm -hmm. so that when you um, meet an AAC user, you know what to do and it doesn't feel weird and uncomfortable and you recognize um, you you have a code for that, you know, and it doesn't feel different and foreign um, and you're uh, accepting of it. Um, So that to me, the word that comes that comes screaming at me in that conversation is education and experience. Mm -hmm and providing people with the both of those. Yeah. And, you know, I think you, you brought up a really good point, Kara, is that, you know, it's, it, it should be an option for a family to have a clinician that comes into their home, especially early intervention, right? Because it's, it's all parent coaching, essentially, um, to come into their home and you don't have to overcompensate. You don't have to explain things. Um, you don't have to feel like you're being judged. Um, I think that that, those are really important things, you know, and so I think that's why it does matter. 
like, like, yes, wouldn't it be great to live in this like utopian world where like, we don't see, we don't see race. Like that's not the world we're living in. Unfortunately, you know, we cannot talk about it, but like, I think talking about it changes that. Right. And talking about it is mm-hmm. like, let's just be, be honest. Right? Um, right. So I think that that's something that is so important. And I'm really happy that you brought that up. All right. So there's one last question. And this one is, um, I mean, one last question we have outlined, but I mean, we can talk all day if you want. <laughs> if you want. Um, so this one, the, I'm going to do my best to try and phrase it in a way that is not, because um, this is, I think, the, the thing I botched the most in that first episode. Um, so here's the question. It's about the police, right? Um, and I think what I was trying to say and what I'd like to say now is the this notion that people uh, who are black, who use AAC, might be at a, a greater risk when they have a police confrontation or a police experience than someone who does not use AAC, who's, who is also black. They might be in double jeopardy. Um, and because of the, the police, one, unawareness of disability, but two, racism. So a phrase that's been jumping out in my mind, I know there's a hashtag for it, it's um, Black Disability Lives Matters. And then that also screams to me, all black lives matter. Does that make sense? Can we talk about that for a second? What are your thoughts on that particular topic? Right. So <laughs> this is what I believe, and I want to make sure it's clear that I am um, not an advocate of Black Lives Matter, right? I believe in the movement, but am I like a spokesperson for Black Lives Matter? No, right? So this is just my opinion. I want to be sure because some people get upset. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter means something different to everyone. Mm-hmm. So I'll start by saying that. But when I think of Black Lives Matter, I don't think Black men's lives matter or Black women's lives matter. I think Black lives matter, right? That's all encompassing. So if I truly believe that Black lives matter, I don't need to add the semantics of Black men's lives matter. Because if I believe Black lives matter, I already believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of feel the same way about adding the disabled part, right? Because if I truly see that Black Lives Matter, of course I believe that Black disabled lives matter. And of course I believe Black children's lives matter. And of course I believe Black women's lives matter. So I think what the overarching goal is, is we have to get people to really believe Black Lives Matter, right? And Mm -hmm. that it's not a controversial topic and it's not a taboo thing. I don't know if I can say this or not, right? just believe it, right? I believe your life matters. I believe Rachel's life matter. Um, I believe my life matters. There it is, right? I don't have to say, I believe Rachel's life matters because she works with AAC and she's a woman um, and she lives in California. So that's why I believe her life matters, right? I could just say, I believe Rachel's life matters. Mm-hmm. So I feel the same way about Black Lives Matter. You know, I, I have seen the trend of people have been adding in more words. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of takes away from what Black Lives Matter is. And that is, we're just trying to get people to realize our life is as valuable as everyone else's, no matter if I'm a woman, child, disabled, abled, hearing, deaf, use AAC, don't sign, you know what I mean? No matter what I look like, my life matters just as much as your life matters. So I don't think this is just my opinion. So everybody, you know, just my opinion. I don't think the semantics are necessary because I already believe Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Right. So when you advocate and you say that, yeah, you can make a you can make a post that is about 
you know, disabled lives, right? Mm -hmm. But then you can still hashtag Black Lives Matter because it's already all encompassing. Just my opinion. I just want to keep saying that because, you know, some people are, (laughs) some people are going to be like, well, let me ask you, because there's another thought I've been having about, you know, there's the, 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 the movement now to, that's called defund the police. And again, if you don't, if you just hear those words, you think, well, that means less police. And what it really means is more money to other programs so the police don't have to do all those other things that uh, they shouldn't be doing, that maybe there's better people that could be doing that, like education, right, for instance. And I've been wondering, again, this is just me thinking like, well, we approach education, a student with a disability, as a team, right? You have your speech therapist, your occupational therapist, you have your, um, your case manager, you have an assistant principal, of course, you have the family, right? And it's a team effort. And I wonder if that is not a way to look at um, calls or as a, as a future is how can we make things more multidisciplinary? And so when you're defunding the police, where are you putting that other their money? And I'm just curious, your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I find it interesting that people are not as enraged that the public schools get defunded almost every year, right? Nobody's enraged by that, which is the same thing. We're defunding the public school system, that money is being allocated to other things, and no one says anything because it's almost on the ballot every time, right? And no one cares. So um, I think that that is where we start first. How about we put some of our money back into education that would then provide us with new team members that can help the police, right? So when we are taking our money away from education to put it in all these other things, but then we're keeping the police and they're full funded, we're missing the mark. Um, I don't know what that team would look like. Um, I, I think that was a great idea. I've never thought about it like that which I think would be amazingly cool. But I think first, can we get some money back into our education, right? Because that's where our police come from. It all starts at education. I just love the enrage that I've been seeing of people that are so upset about defunding the police. We're not saying get rid of police. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Right. Um, but also, my public school gets on the ballot every year and no one is enraged. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, start, let's start being enraged about that. Let's start making change about that. Let's start doing something about that first, okay? And then we can then talk about why you're mad we want to defund the police a little bit. Um, let's get some money back into my my kids and education. <laughs> yep. No, I completely agree with that. Um, so, Carol, what are some things that people, because I know people are, and I, when I say people, white people, are really interested in how they can do better, how they can learn, how they can help all the issues that we outlined in this episode. So, you know, what are things that clinicians who are listening or parents or teachers who are listening to this podcast, what are some things that they can do to really move the needle? I think it starts with you have to be willing to talk about it, right? It's an uncomfortableness that you might feel. You may not want to say the wrong thing or you don't want to offend anyone, but you have to be willing to talk about it. Because I would rather, of course, I don't want you to offend me, but I would rather you say something that I don't necessarily agree with or it's probably not the right way to say it. And I can correct you when you learn from it instead of you just, I'm not going to say anything because I just don't want to offend anyone, right? Because who, who learns from that? And I think, you know, not just talking to one another, but let's start talking to our kids about it. 
because I think a lot of parents are like, well, my kid is too young. I don't know what age to start talking to it about. Whether that be black kids or white kids, they probably experience racism at some level before you've even thought about talking to them about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So not only do we talk to our kids, well, what is racism? Why might some people be discriminated against about before others? We need to give examples. Right. So we need to say, hey, you might go into a store with your friend and your friend may get stopped by the person that's working. Let's talk about why that might happen or vice versa. Hey, you may be in a store with your friend and you're going to get stopped and your and your friend will not. Let's talk about why that is. Um, and whatever age that you are thinking to start having these conversations with your kid, I'm going to guess you need to go younger. <laughs> and it's going to be awkward and it's going to be uncomfortable, right? But how much more uncomfortable would it be that your kid goes to school and experiences something or sees their friend being discriminated against and they have no idea what's going on? And now, not only do they have no idea what's going on, but they don't know which side to choose. They don't know if they should go with the friends that are being bullied or stick with their friends. They have no idea because this topic has been so taboo that we don't talk about it. So I would say, start talking about it and give examples. Like you can't just say, hey, black people may be discriminated against. Well, what does that mean? Because if I'm five, I don't even know what discrimination is, right? (laughs) Give me an example. And the same way, vice versa, because I'm sure they probably have experienced it or seen something before you're ready to talk about it. Um, And I would say for clinicians and teachers, and I'm guilty of this too, we have to be better at diversifying our materials, right? Like why even myself, I have one brown baby doll in all of my baby doll collection. That's Mm kind of insane. Why are all of my books, you know, I don't see any girls with, curly hair and I have curly in my hair myself. That's a little insane, right? So I think we have to be open um, to when you go into Target, how about you go down the other aisle or look up before you look at what you would normally look at um, and just be open to diversifying the things you already have. And I think you you brought up a really good point, Kara. You know, we have to start with children. We have such a great opportunity because the reason that I feel uncomfortable talking about race is because it was always taboo to talk about. I was never talked to about race. I was always told, don't talk about that, you know? And so we have this opportunity with the students that we work with, you know, with our own kids, if you have kids, um, to start talking about it openly so that it's not taboo because it's through the conversations that's how, you know, we learn and we grow and, you know, not talking about it doesn't do anybody any good. Absolutely. And, you know, and how much better would it be that you start this conversation with your kid and they ask a question and now you guys can look at us and learn about it together, mm-hmm. right? Instead of your kid going to school and maybe asking something that's probably really inappropriate to their friend. And now every, now we, we really are all uncomfortable, right? Because now we're in the principal's office and all kinds of stuff, right? So why not start at home? And then now you can learn and my kid can learn. And now I can realize what's the better way I could have explained this. Or, you know, this is what else we need to talk about. I think we just got to start the conversation and we just have to talk about it. 
Kara, I'm going to try and make the the call to action a little bit more specific, if that's okay, because you started mm-hmm. off by saying about the ASHA petition, right? Like that people just write emails and they won't really like, yeah, we have to do better. And I put that in air quotes. Like what is do better? Like we have, have more conversations. What is have more? Like one more, two more? So I feel like it needs to be very concrete. And I think there's some research supports the idea that when you write a goal uh, and you, you write it down and then you actually share it with somebody that you um, are more apt to to do it so i wonder if the call to action is 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 like not have more conversations but i'm going to commit to having three with my kids before the end of the summer or i'm going to commit to reading two different books or watching a movie or three or what and whatever the media is or whatever the conversations are maybe it's podcasts that you're listening to (laughs) um since we're a podcast but you're gonna you're gonna write those numbers down and you're going to hold yourself accountable to doing that because it's too easy. It, when that uncomfortable feeling happens, it's too easy to just lean into that and go, yeah, you know, maybe I won't have that conversation. Uh, that's kind of kind of difficult and yucky to do. Uh, let's just go like uh, mm-hmm. on a walk and not really talk about it. You know? mm-hmm. um, so by writing it down and having it someplace that kind of you look at it every day and go, I haven't done that yet. I got to do that. You know, what do you think? I, I love that. I never even thought about it like that, but that is so true. You know, you can't just, Say you're going to do something. If it's not measurable, hey, Oracle Thieves, everything needs to be measurable. Smart goals. Make it a smart goal. I love that. For sure. Yeah, I think that exactly right. Making it specific and measurable. And this is, this is an ongoing thing, right? This is a practice. This isn't like, oh, I'm at the finish line. Like here I am, you know, it's constantly thinking about these things, having conversations, you know, I think it's definitely an ongoing thing that you commit to. And it's like any other ongoing thing. You have to anchor that in something that is, you know, specific and measurable that you can look back on and say, either I achieved that goal or I did not achieve that goal. You know, and I think Mm -hmm. that that's part of the problem, right? We all aspire to do all these things. We're like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to eat healthy. And, you know, it's like these like nebulous things, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to learn more about diversity. You need to make specific goals because otherwise it just like, we know how the, the, I'm going to go to the gym every day. We know how that goes. Like, (laughs) you know, Um, so getting, you know, making sure that it's specific and measurable, achievable, I think is, is such a great idea. So Kara, I have to, I'm going to be really vulnerable and open with you right now. When, you know, our first episode released and you sent us an email with, you know, challenging some of the things that we, you know, said and the way that we approached the topic, my first reaction was like, I feel like I got sucker punched in the stomach. Like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that like we tried so hard to like create this episode and like we didn't do it. Like we missed the mark and I was really upset about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Like Chris and I hopped on a phone call immediately, you know, seeing your email and we spent, you know, a long time talking. We went line by line through your email. Then we, you know, together we drafted a response. Um, But I have to say that, I woke up, you know, the next morning and I was still kind of like, oh, like, I don't know. My first reaction was like, I want to run away from this. I don't want to do an anti-racism episode. I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, I don't even want to do a podcast anymore. Like, this is too hard. I don't want to do it because it was uncomfortable, right? I had to sit with that discomfort of like, I said something that hurt someone else or could potentially hurt someone else. Um, you know, the language we use matters. And, you know, these conversations are so important. And I have to say that I really think that saying the wrong thing was the best thing that could have happened to us on this Mm -hmm. podcast. I really think that that was 
that was the best case scenario, right? Because, you know, it's like we're living proof that you say things wrong, right? You try to do the right thing, but maybe you you don't and you don't know, you know? And so what you did with that email was uncovered blind spots that we did not, we did not see. We did not understand that. Um, and so thank you so much for your feedback and, you know, your willingness to come on here and talk to us. Um, I have to say that like, at first I was like, this is the worst thing ever. And now I actually think it was the best thing ever. Awesome. I appreciate that. I, I, you know, I appreciate when I'm, I was nervous about sitting my response. I said, I don't want them to think I'm attacking them, right? Like everything is, a, I wanted it to be a learning opportunity for the both of us, right? Because it took me a quite a long time to write because I didn't want it to sound like I was attacking because I, I love it. it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me quite a while and then I had my friends like, can you read this? Just to make sure this doesn't sound mean because like I'm, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings. Um, so that was a learning experience for myself as well as how do I give constructive comments and let them be constructive and be what they are, right? But not be mean, because that's not the point. But I will say what I appreciated the most out of your response is I didn't feel like you deflected or made it be like, well, I just didn't know, so we did our best, right? Because no one ever wants to hear that. When you're trying to help someone, you never want to hear, well, I tried. You should be happy I tried. Um, and I think that that's um, very important for you know many people to learn. It's like, be okay that you might make a mistake and take responsibility for the mistake. Oh, I said that and I probably shouldn't or, you know, whatever it may be and learn from it and then don't do it again. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't deflect and be like, well, I didn't know any better. Well, I saw this on TV. So I thought, you know, I don't want to hear your reasonings and your excuses. Just understand that maybe it wasn't okay. And I'm offended by it and move on because I would mm -hmm. hope that you, that if you did that to me, I would react the same way. So I do really, truly appreciate it that I didn't feel like you guys deflected, that you said, oh, man, we messed up. It's gone. <laughs> you want to hear it again? Uh, we took it down immediately. It. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and I were Which frantically, I we were like, oh my gosh, we don't even, because we don't post <laughs> it. Our the producer Luke posted it. I was like, I don't even know how to delete an episode. <laughs> like I do, I do, I do. I'll get on right now. I'll delete it. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, yeah. We, we, and we, and I knew, I knew that that was a hard email for you to write. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We had that conversation. Easy. It's not easy. Like saying, Hey, guess what? Like you actually like hurt me with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, it's so hard on both ends, right? Like it's hard to receive. It's hard to give, but we both need to lean in, right? Both mm -hmm. sides need to lean in. And I feel like this podcast is a beautiful representation of that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I love it. I, I feel the exact same way. I, I, I feel like this so is a big love fest now, and I'm really into know. it. <laughs> okay, well, okay, I so we can't hug. I know a virtual <laughs> hug for sure. Well, Kara, listen, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Honestly, this has like been such an amazing episode. We will absolutely link to your petition. We want everybody who's listening to go and sign it. You know, we'll also link to um, any social media that you have because I'm sure. You know, everyone who's listening would love to kind of follow this petition, but also, you know, potentially follow the work that you're doing. I know that you just recently started a business, um, at least a business Instagram, which I follow, mm -hmm. um, which I really love. So we would love to kind of link to all those things in the show notes. How can people find you online? Yeah, so currently I'm brand new to the Instagram of SLP World. Um, and my Instagram handle is the Buckeye SLP. 
Amazing. We'll link to that definitely in the show notes. Thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate your insight. Um, hopefully, hopefully we can have you come back on, um, you know, to keep talking about these issues. And um, I'm really excited to see kind of where this petition goes. It's gotten so much traction in such a short amount of time, which is really mm -hmm. exciting to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to come back. This is a blast. <laughs> so we love to have you. For, talk, for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Mado, joined by Chris Bugay and Kara Walton. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.